Coffee and Comics, What's Not to Like. The next episode of Retconned is all that and more. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Retconned, a podcast of assorted geekery. I'm Rick Marshall, and this time around we've got comic book writer Ron Mars in the studio. A veteran of the comics industry who's written just about every character you can probably name, Mars is, as always, currently working on a long list of comics projects. They include a comic book series for Death Wish Coffee, the Saratoga Springs Coffee Company that made headlines in 2015 by winning a contest to have its commercial air during the Super Bowl. The second issue of Odin Force was released during New York Comic Con earlier this year. We spoke to Mars about Odin Force, as well as some of his other projects, including his work on the recently relaunched Ominous Press line of comics, and the Beasts of the Black Hand series he's collaborating on with celebrated X-Files and Doctor Who artist Matthew Dow Smith and master sculptor and toy designer Paul Harding. We also discussed the role of social media in the modern age of comics. The day of reckoning is upon us! My brothers, what is life if not to die a glorious death? Fear not, for tonight we drink in the halls of Valhalla! Grow! Awaken and welcome death! Ron, I think it's important to uh, to begin by letting you know that you're the first returning guest that we've had on Retcon. I don't know if that speaks more to uh, your your generosity with your time or our ability to trick you into coming back. I, I was told there would be cookies, so. Ooh, I have bad news for you. Oh no. <laughs> well, uh, New York Comic Con was was held just a few weeks ago. Uh, you had some projects make news there. Second issue of Odin Force. Uh, you did that for Death Wish Coffee. I like Vikings. I like strong coffee, so I'm an easy sell on this one. But I'm curious, how did you get from Death Wish Coffee's Super Bowl commercial to having a whole fleshed-out world in a comic book series? Um, it was really just, you know, you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. And um, I was friends with some guys who knew the guys from Death Wish, um, Jeff Ayers being one of them who now works at Death Wish. Um, and they just sort of started poking around with the idea of, Hey, the comics community is a, is a loyal, um, very engaged community, and obviously one of the best things that Death Wish does, in addition to making really really good coffee, is um, their brand management and their their uh, brand initiatives are amazing. I mean, they have loyal customers, so they wanted to try to branch out into some other. Um, some other markets, some other communities that maybe they weren't in already. So the idea of doing a comic came up with them. And um, so they came to me and said, hey, can we can we do a comic? And I'm like, sure, we can totally do a comic. Uh, but what do you want? How do you want? Is it the story of Death Wish? Is it is it, you know, Coffee Man? What you know, what are we doing here? Um, and they were adamant about we don't want these to be advertisements. We don't want this to be product placement. We just want we just want a cool story. And I was like, well, all right, what do you want? And then um, Mike Brown, who uh, who founded and, and owns Death Wish, uh, took out his phone and showed me the Super Bowl commercial and said, you can't see this. You can't talk about it. But here, look at this. Uh, so, so, you know, I saw the commercial uh, and obviously – Vikings on a stormy sea going over a waterfall. All right, that's that's our story. That's yeah, where our man. story begins, um, and so that's where the that's where the comic came from. Uh, that okay, what happens when they go over the waterfall? 
Uh, so the first issue we did last year uh, and produced it in time for Free Comic Book Day. And then the, res- the response was good enough, uh, the reception was good enough that they said, yeah, let's, let's do another one. Um, so now it's kind of developed into its own story, and we're talking about well, what, what happens after this one? Where do we go? So Now you have it, to think beyond. It's, well, it's been a really satisfying project to work on because they've been so supportive of just tell a good story. Just do something cool. Uh, and in fact, you know, Mike, who, you know, who, who runs the company and obviously is, is, you know, putting up the funds to make a comic, doesn't read the comic until we're done with it. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, for, for the first issue, he was kind of involved and wanted to see what the process was. For the second one, Mike didn't read it until we handed him a printed copy, um, which is sort of terrifying in some ways. And, and in other ways, just, you know, it's just a great, um, great pat on the back that we kind of know what we're doing at this point. And um, honestly, it's one of the most fun things I work on because it's just we're just making up stuff. Uh, this one, uh, issue two came out for New York Comic Con. And then we did a, did a local signing as well um, last weekend, I guess. Uh, no, yeah, there's a lot before. of uh, local connections here. Yeah, it's I it's, yourself, uh, Death Wish. Um, you know, it's you, you. One of the nice things about being in comics is that a lot of times you can work with your friends. Uh, so when this came about, yeah. okay, I called Rick Leonardi because he's a buddy and he's also a great, great artist. Uh, and then I called Joe Jesco, who's a buddy and a great, great artist. So we pulled the whole team together. I mean, literally in the space of a couple of phone calls. And I'm really, I'm really proud of the, what we've done because I think if you're not interested in Death Wish or coffee or anything that that made this come together, you get 20 pages of really cool Vikings fighting an abominable snowman. So, uh, and again, I'm, and, I'm if, sold. and if and if you show up in the right spots, you get it for free. So how can how can you not love it? Free's good too. I'm I'm double sold. That's great. <laughs> well, uh, as a uh, as a writer who's working on a lot of projects, big and small, you're you're usually all over the place. You've got Odin Force. You got uh, the Ominous Press books uh, that you're working on. So many other mainstream projects, indie projects, licensed stuff, tie-in material. Um, I can get bogged down for about an hour writing one email uh, or like three lines of text in a in an article. Um, I don't know how you avoid getting distracted as a storyteller how do you juggle all of those things that you have going on um the mortgage needs to be paid every month you know that's that's ultimately the answer is all right you got to get stuff done and can you compartmentalize like these stories because there's a lot of like there's a lot of narrative juices flowing i guess simultaneously when you're doing these types of things and and you know you have to worry about them maybe i guess crossing um yeah you don't want to cross the streams right yeah uh it's I guess it's a skill that I've I've developed over years of doing this, but I don't really have much of a problem plugging into one project and unplugging from another. Um, the The nature of being a writer in comics is you juggle things um, because you really can't, you know, it, <clears throat> writing one comic a month is not um, is not financially viable uh, to make a living out of doing it. You know, that's a that's a hobby. If you write one comic a month that's a hobby if you if you're juggling multiple projects that's a job that's a career um so the nature of the beast is you're constantly juggling the things that you're doing and then you have one eye on the things that you want to do next that you have to have pitches out for or line up projects and get deadlines rolling um it's uh, it's It's a a, hustle 
Yeah, it's it, you know it's multitasking yeah. in its in its finest form. It's it's you know it's not like I can actually juggle three balls. I can juggle three juggling pins. Sometimes what you have to do in comics is juggling four or five or six balls, and you got to keep them all in the air at the same time. Um, While planning to add a few more down. Yeah, the road. and it's not it's not always the easiest thing in the world, but it's just the nature of the beast. So if if I can help it, I like to work on one thing a day. Like today is going to be is going to be, you know, planning for the next Death Wish book or um, finishing up the last pages of uh, Beast of the Black Hand, which is a project I'm doing with uh, Paul Harding, a local, local sculptor, and uh, Matthew Dow Smith, a, a, an artist and friend of ours that actually used to live locally. Um, Paul Harding was a another past guest on the show here. <laughs> well, see if you can get him to come back. Yeah. Um, so, so it was, you know, so if I can do one thing a day, that makes that makes my head simpler. Um, I don't mind doing you know one thing on Tuesday and another thing on Wednesday. That's fine. Um, if I have to, you know, there are those days when you have to do, you know, three pages of this and four pages of that, and and you know, work out the timeline for the other thing. Those are days that I'm not as fond of because it just because you don't feel like you make enough process prog- progress by the end of the day. You, you know, ten or eleven o'clock at night or whenever you run out of gas. Um, because this is not a nine to five job, you, you look up and you go, well, I, I didn't really move the ball forward enough. You know, I moved the ball forward on a number of fronts, but I don't feel like I accomplished enough on any one of them. And sometimes you have those days and you just got to, you know, you go, okay, fine. And, uh, you know, you go to bed and, and you get up and do the same thing over again the next day and try to, you know, try to get something closer to the finish line. Well, uh, we touched on this earlier, the, the ominous press books. They're a big focal point for you now. Um, in promoting the books, you've been pushing the idea that comics have uh, gotten away from emphasizing the art, uh, which I feel is a really interesting perspective to come from a writer uh, like yourself, and, uh, and that these books get back to uh, art as the priority. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on that a bit more. I can't help thinking about the state of things now compared to, you know, back in the day when, when artists were everything in comics and the story felt kind of secondary to things. So it feels like that, that idea has some merit. Sure. Well, you know, I, I came of age in comics in terms of, of working in them professionally in the 90s. Uh, that was, you know, that's when I got my first work and, you know, got in at Marvel and DC and, and really cut my teeth on my career. And that was very much the era of the superstar artist. Yeah. Um, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, you know, that whole whole list of of guys. Um, they had Levi's jeans ads with yeah, comic artists. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so Wizard Magazine was the sort of the Bible of comics for, you know, a good part of that decade. You might be slightly familiar with that. I, I indeed am. Um, but, you know, Wizard started as they had a they had a top 10 artist list. Writers need not apply. Yeah. Uh, eventually, they, you know, they had a top 10 writers list next to it. And I. And I did my time on it. Um, but that era of comics was very much the the era of, man, this looks really cool. And if you didn't get a whole lot of story to it, you weren't all that you weren't all that bothered by it because it looked cool. As long as you got um, a splash page. And yeah, and the, the the pendulum obviously has swung back in the other direction completely where I think artists are now seen as kind of interchangeable cogs, with with some exceptions, certainly. Um, but it's a, it's a very we are in a very writer driven age of comics, which means I think the the comics as a whole tend to be less visual, more talky. Um, obviously, the 
the magic point in comics is when the art and the story um, combine and make something bigger and better than either one of them separately could could accomplish. Um, so that's kind of where my sweet spot is, and I want to, you know, I want to work on books where people show up and go, oh man, that looks amazing. Uh, you know, that's why that's why we do comics. They are visual documents. They're visual storytelling. So. You know, if if it's just, if it's twenty pages of talking heads, you know, write a one act play or something, man. Um, I don't, you know, I don't pick up an Avengers comic so I can see them have coffee and chat in the kitchen of Avengers Mansion. I mean, that's not. Maybe somebody else wants that. That's not what I'm showing up for. I, you know, I want to see somebody get punched through a wall. So, so when I've always approached these stories, the scripts that I write as visual documents, and how can I? How can I give the artist something cool to draw, which translates into how can we show the audience something cool to see? Uh, so it's not that we're letting the story take a back seat in the ominous stuff, but I want to make sure that you get at least one or two visuals every issue that kind of blow your eyes out of your head. I mean, when we were kids, you you know, you would pick up an extra issue of of Thor or New Teen Titans or whatever it is, because there was this cool double-page spread in it that, frankly, you wanted to pull out of the book and hang up on your wall. Uh, I don't, I don't think that kind of stuff happens enough anymore. That massive, you know, George Perez-style crowded photo of all of the heroes together, or something like that, too. I, I remember those being a big part of my uh, comics experience growing up. Yeah, I think, I think the, you know, those were sort of building blocks for us as to this is what a comic is. This yeah. is, this is why you show up. Um, so certainly, certainly on the ominous stuff where I'm writing it as well as being the editor in chief of the company, we're making sure that visuals are just as much a part of the story as, you know, the pearls of wisdom that I, that I put in the word balloons. Uh, and if some of those pearls of wisdom got to get cut because there's not enough room, because there's too much art, there's too much awesome stuff to blow your eyes out of your head. That's how it works. Uh, and I'm, I've always been fine with that. I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not of the school that says I'm the most important part of the process. Uh, I'm a I'm a part of the process, and part of my job is to help the artist, whoever that is, um, a have a good time doing what they're doing. Because if you know, again, if it's if it's twenty pages of talking heads, it's not a whole lot of fun for them either. They you know dragging themselves to the board in the morning is not. Uh, a pleasurable experience because they know oh, I'm going to do the same thing I did yesterday and tomorrow I'm going to do the same thing I did today. Uh, so it's got to be, you know, it's got to be something cool and exciting. And I think the process is fairly simple. If I write something cool for the artist to draw, the reader gets something cool to look at. And and to me, that's kind of the magic of, of what we do. There's uh, just this morning before I, before I uh, came over here, uh, Tom Ranney sent me a double-page spread cityscape uh, for the next issue of Dread Gods. And it's, you know, it's to die for. It took him a week to draw two pages. It's amazing looking. Um, and that's that's what we want. You know, short of short of killing our artists with that kind of stuff. Because um, <laughs> that can go in the other direction. Yeah, there there yeah, could yeah, be yeah. writers who write something and an artist just starts cursing at them. Well, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be the guy who says you know, panel one, an alien armada of a thousand ships, you know, swoops in on Earth. Panel two, even more ships show up. You know, that you have to have a sense, you have to have a visual sense of what what works, what doesn't, 
um, how much can you can actually fit on a page. Um, and I, I think I, I've been lucky enough to always kind of have that sense, I think probably because I read comics as a kid and I got taught to write comics by Jim Starlin, who is, you know, one of the all-time great writers and artists. So best, I yeah. absorbed what he taught me in terms of this is how a page works. This is what an artist needs. This is what you can do on a page. Um, and to me, that's still the most fun part of the process is, you know, something that was in my head and I, you know, I scribble down on uh, on a script, then comes back to me a while later and it's made real by somebody with a far more talent than I have. <laughs> well, uh... Uh, bear with me here. I'm going to switch gears a bit. Uh, I'm always uh, fascinated by the way technology and, and media affect uh, the comic scene and a lot of the other, you know, geekery that we get excited about. Um, some creators avoid social media. Others have embraced it. You're, you're definitely in the latter group. Um, anyone on Twitter uh, knows that, you know, you're active in sort of sharing stuff and engaging with people who, who read it, you know, for better or worse. That's sort of the situation that we're in. Um, it's it's a weird time now in social media, uh, especially for creators and, and creative types um, out there. I'd love to get your thoughts as a creator of content uh, on how social media has, has sort of changed the way you look at the comic scene, uh, if at all, because there's a sort of direct link now to the consumers of the media that, you know, can be good, can be bad. Does it affect sort of the way you're, you're looking at the comic scene? It doesn't affect the way I do my job um, because I've always... You know, when I sit down in the chair every morning, I write a story that I want to read. Um, that's to me, that's my job is to entertain myself because I'm the only audience whose tastes I'm absolutely 100% sure of. <laughs> um, so, so I'm not showing up to, you know, say, oh, what would you like? You know, this, this isn't, you know, this isn't a restaurant where you can order whatever you want off the menu and get it brought to you. I'm, you know, I'm not here to write the Captain America story that you ordered. I'm here to write the story that I want to tell. And hopefully you come along for the ride and you and you enjoy it. And we both get to the end of it and feel satisfied. Um, but this is not a, you know, this is not a choose your own adventure style medium that I work in. Uh, and and sometimes when you say that, the audience doesn't like it. Uh, you know, years ago when I was working on Green Lantern, we got a lot of pushback for the Emerald Twilight story, which removed Hal Jordan and installed the new Green Lantern that we created. Um, we got a huge amount of grief, obviously. Um, but but more specifically, we got grief from people who, well, this isn't the story I want. Tell tell the story I want. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not your dancing monkey, you know, working for spare change here. I'm telling the story that, A my employers hired me to tell and B that I think is the best story I can tell. So, um, there's social media has, has made that, that line even blurrier, um, because the feedback is immediate. The access is immediate, uh, and widespread so that if somebody doesn't like the story that you put out on that Wednesday, you hear about it by two Oh one on Wednesday. Um, and, there's already a hashtag for it. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's certainly there's certainly a uh, a sense of I'm going to tell you whether I liked it or not, and then you should do what I want. And again, that's not how this works. As you know, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Uh, so, so 
while I I enjoy Twitter a bunch because it it allows you to connect with your audience. It allows you to um, get feedback and share things that you think are cool. Um, I like the social aspect of it. Um, and I've made people who have become friends on Twitter um, certainly, you know, have have uh, it's been far more of a uh, of a success for me than a than a than a pain. But and, and I think the vast, vast majority of people, you know, behave themselves, interact politely and respectfully and really, you know, use the medium as it was intended. And then you get the other 10 percent who sort of ruin it for everybody. So if there's a pool full of people and there's one dude peeing in the pool, the whole pool is kind of ruined, even though it's one guy being a problem. Uh, so to me, that's that's Twitter all over. Is it just, you know, because you, you have a uh, small number of malcontents, trolls, jerk-offs, weirdos who just want to cause a problem, it sort of casts a pall over the whole thing. Um, now, from my perspective, I don't really care. Like, you can say whatever you want to me. I just don't care. Uh, I, you know, I, I had that armor years ago from, from Green Lantern and even back before that in my first real job that I ever had as a journalist. You know, you got grief. You got grief no matter what happened. You Nowadays, know? it's never read the comments section. That's the one rule that I always tell uh, yeah. uh, writers coming up is never read the comments section on your own stuff. So, so thankfully, I came into the business already not caring what you think um, because I just learned that that's how you have to approach this stuff. You can't, you can't take any of it to heart and you can't, um, you can't let it affect, uh, certainly you can't let it affect your mental outlook and you can't let it affect how you do your job. You just have to, and, and that actually, that's a sword that cuts both ways. I mean, if somebody is, uh, is screaming at you, you ignore it. But on the other hand, if somebody's really patting you on the back and says you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you have to ignore that too. Yeah. If you're going to ignore one side of it, you have to ignore the other. Um, so you you have to come into this with, a, I think, a fairly strong constitution and, and, and frankly, a fairly strong ego. You have to believe in what you're doing if you're going to put it out in front of people. Um, so, so, you know, I, and I, I, I'm really fortunate in that I came into this business with that mindset already. Cause I know there are a lot of, a lot of pros, a lot of really successful pros who, you know, go into a cocoon when somebody says something bad, like they didn't like, they didn't like the issue or, or, you know, your Batman looks stupid or, you know, whatever the complaint is. Um, and that they, they're not, they're not up to taking those slings and arrows. Um, and I don't, I don't blame them. It's not easy, but you also, I, I think if you're going to do this, really any creative pursuit where you're putting your stuff out in front of an audience, even if it's, if it's work for higher characters, um, that, that you don't own that, you know, don't come from any, uh, place deep inside you, but you still put yourself into whatever you do. I mean, I don't, I didn't own Silver Surfer. I didn't own Green Lantern. I didn't own Witchblade. But those those runs that I had on those series were all a reflection of me, of me and the people that I was working with on those issues. Um, if you're not if you're not up to uh, listening to some static from people that aren't happy, uh, maybe maybe pull back, maybe disengage a bit. Um, it's it's a uh, 
it's like you said, it's, it's an interesting time right now because the, the feedback is so immediate and everybody, we live in an outrage culture where, where, uh, we get outraged over everything. Uh, and, and it's sort of the national pastime in a lot of ways. And learning uh, how to deal with that, I think, is something that uh, a lot of writers, whether you're in comics or journalism or anything else, uh, uh, seem to uh, be, be needing to learn, I guess, uh, pretty early on. Yeah, and it's, and it's certainly, I mean, this stuff doesn't happen in real life. You don't get this sort of grief in person. Yeah. Um, you get it because it's anonymous. And there's no filter. It's immediate. If somebody wants to yell at me on Twitter because they didn't like something I did or something I said, there are no ramifications. There's no there's no penalty for it. Um, you can just have at. Uh, certainly, most of us should live by the rule of, you know, hey, if you wouldn't say it in real life, don't type it on a screen. Uh, like but but it it doesn't rule. it doesn't you know it's that's not the way it works. Now certainly. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of that. And I'm also a big fan of, you know, like, you know, if there's a chance of you getting punched in the face, you probably behave yourself a little bit better. Uh, So I'm I'm all for the the society in which there's a better chance of getting punched in the face because I think we'd all be kinder to each other. (laughs) Well, after after throwing that one at you, I'm going to throw a I think hopefully softball at you here because I, this is something I've all the time that we've known each other I don't know if I've ever actually asked you this you've done such a wide range of characters you've done you know the movie characters comics characters you've done you know uh, characters from novels you've done characters from video games is there a character that you haven't done yet that you're still really really like hoping to to work on at some point um so my answer to this and I get this question Actually, everybody gets this question because it's, yeah. it's a good question. I feel like and, it's and, weird that and, I don't know this answer and, for you. And also, you you know, you walk away from the interview going, oh, yeah, I haven't done that yet. That kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. So, so um, I guess it wasn't a softball. It's just a depressing question. It's just a depressing question. So, so like, characters, I've been blessed to be able to have, you know, played in the Marvel and DC universes with virtually all the characters at one point or another. And Star Wars, which is you know, what I grew up on. Um, Sherlock Holmes, I've, I've, John Carter of Mars, I've scratched most of those itches. Um, and even gone out of my way to scratch itches like uh, The Shadow or The Phantom, where I, you know, like I have to go do that at least once so I can cross it off the bucket I remember list. you telling me a long time ago how excited you were about John Carter. So this is, this is why I'm, I don't know what that answer would be for you. Now. Well, so the, so the answer is, even though I have written the character previously in some stuff but the the answer is if i could do any monthly book like from now until they wheel me off to the little old writer's home i would do a tarzan monthly book tarzan uh just because it's it's something i grew up with and and you know the tarzan comics certainly have a huge uh history uh both comic strips and comic books um, there's a huge tradition of Tarzan comics. It sort of bugs the hell out of me that there's not a monthly Tarzan comic um, from anybody. There's, you know, stuff comes out in fits and starts. and um, But that's, I look at that and, and I think that's the one that I could do like forever. I could, I could, I could live in that world and play with those characters because the, the Tarzan stuff of the novels certainly and to a little bit lesser extent the comics 
I mean, half of it's fantasy stuff. It's it's you know lost lost Roman cities and and you know inner worlds with dinosaurs and it, monstrous there's, beasts. There's a there's a there's a big aspect of Tarzan that that has never made it to the big screen because it's expensive to do that stuff. You know, it's a lot easier to shoot on the back lot and pretend you're in Africa. Um, but that's really you know that's the one that's the great white whale for me is that that doing that Tarzan book. Um, and it's and it's funny. I, I know a lot of artists that go, oh man, I'd love to do Tarzan, because it's it's got such a great comics pedigree. You know, uh, Hal Foster and Vern Hogarth, and obviously, you know, at the top of the top of the list, Joe Kubert. Uh, certainly, certainly, even the, the John Buscema stuff at Marvel in the '70s was, you know, probably not what uh, not to the level of what Joe Kubert was doing at DC, but it's still some gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Um, I think Tarzan in comics. I think Kubert. Yeah, I mean everybody does. I mean obviously that's the uh, that's not just that's not just good Tarzan comics. That's good comics period. That's to me some of the best stuff ever. Um so that's that's kind of tops on my list and I've been able to been able to do Tarzan a few times here and there. I did uh Batman versus Tarzan um crossover with DC and Dark Horse a number of years ago. And I actually do uh, weekly Sunday-style strips for the Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated website. Um, one of them is The Mucker, which is an adaptation of some of the uh, Burroughs novels of a really kind of his only anti-hero. Um, and then the other one is Korak, uh, Tarzan's son, who is sort of bigger and badder than Tarzan, if such a thing is, is possible. And that's actually one that I do with Rick Leonardi. Um, and we really just do it because... Man, we we love that stuff. Um, if and if if anybody's paying attention, the the Korak story that we're actually doing right now um, is set in a lost Egyptian city in Africa. That was actually the setting for the Batman Tarzan crossover we did. So um, we can't actually say that, but cause, a little Easter egg there for yeah. So familiar. so if 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 you if you dig what I did on Tarzan, you, there's a little bit more of it there. <laughs> well, I feel like this might be a, uh, a question that has a long answer, but what else are you working on these days? What should we look out for? Um, I should always write this down because I get into these things and go, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, so we are, uh, well, we'll start with Ominous Press, which is um, the publishing company that uh, that I'm a partner in with uh, Bart Sears, Andy Smith and Sean Husfar, who was our publisher, and that's sort of you know our let's let's tell some stories we want to tell uh, kind of project. So I'm doing uh, uh, we're we're doing a series of miniseries. So I'm doing um, Dread Gods with Tom Ranney, and then I will be writing Demigod that Andy Smith is going to draw, and Bart Sears is going to do his uh, his own book that he will write and draw and I'll edit um, called Giant Killers. So. We're starting this, you know, sort of small, cohesive universe. Uh, we're also going to be doing uh, Ominous Presents stuff, which is going to be other projects that don't have anything to do with the the original Ominous characters that we're dealing with now. Um, and I'm writing and, and uh, I guess, editing, although nobody, we don't have a real editor. We're just, we just sort of make, make sure stuff gets, gets done. Uh, I'm writing Beast of the Black Hand, which is a concept from... The aforementioned Paul Harding. Uh, it's a sort of diesel punk uh, monster slash adventure story set in 1919 uh, that Matthew Dow Smith is drawing. And um, 
Matt is almost done with uh, the first volume, which is 48 pages. We're going to be uh, we're going to be launching the Kickstarter for that um, on October 31st. So uh, hopefully the Kickstarter gets us across the line for uh, finishing up the book and printing. The idea is that we're going to print it as a oversized hardcover uh, and really kind of do a French album presentation for it. Um, and that uh, that's beastoftheblackhand.com. And hopefully, you know, we do this one and keep telling the story because there's a bunch more that we want to do with it. Um, so that's that's the ominous side of things. Uh, I'm started on volume two of The Protectors, which is a story that I do with uh, Israel Adonage, who's a former NFL player, uh, who came up with this sort of great sports meets superheroes story that that I'm very much thinking of as the kind of thing that that I read as a kid, like George Perez Teen Titans and John Byrne X-Men and, and frankly, Byrne and uh, Perez Avengers issues. So I wanted to capture that that feeling that I got as, as a 12-year-old with these stories. So uh, we, uh, Bart Sears and I actually did the first volume. That's out as a trade paperback, um, and it's just sort of straight-up really cool superhero stuff. Uh, and the superheroes happen to be athletes in their other lives. We, the, 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 the watchword that we've, or the, 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 the phrase that we've come up with is the protectors is a story about sports the way Superman is a story about journalism. That's fair. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us, Ron. And uh, I, I got to ask, would you come back for a third time? It's like, all right, you, you, you suckered me in with the cookies this time. So, so, you know, probably if you said, well, there's going to be cookies, I would just trot right back because, you know, I'm gullible that way. Thank you very much for joining us, man. That was comics writer Ron Mars. The first two issues of his Odin Force comic for Death Wish Coffee are available now. Look for that and other projects, including the ominous press line of comics, in your local comic shop. And check out the funding campaign for Beasts of the Black Hand on Kickstarter. This has been Retcon, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Patrick Garrett. I'm Rick Marshall. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your podcast app of choice. It lets us know you're out there and that you want to hear more.